and then say, tricked you, it's afternoon. Awesome. Why don't you stand to your feet? We're going to kick off uh, today's session uh, with a bit of praise and worship. What better time uh, than to start the service off and bring a bit of praise, sacrifice of praise maybe, maybe not, but God's worthy of praise, yeah? Awesome. Let's go. We're going to sing a song, uh, a local song from this church called I Will Rejoice. You got two hands, why don't you put them together? There we go. I come before, I come before you, Jesus, with thanks and praise to you, my God. You are my God. Your love endures forever. Your faithfulness will never end, will never end. You put, you put a new song in my heart, and I will sing it back to you. I will rejoice, I will rejoice, make a joyful noise and raise my voice. I will rejoice in the risen King, Jesus. I lay my life, I lay my life before you. Your words are lamp unto my feet. You light my way. Your word will last forever. Your truth will never see There is no end. You put a new song. You put a new song in my heart And I will sing it back to you I will rejoice, I will rejoice Make a joyful noise and raise my voice I will rejoice in the risen King Jesus, I will rejoice, I will rejoice, I will rejoice, make a joyful noise and raise my voice, I will rejoice in the risen King, Jesus. Forgiveness. Oh, forgiveness is here. Oh, it's in Jesus. Healing. Sing freedom. Oh, 
will rejoice, I will rejoice. I will rejoice in the risen King, Jesus. I will rejoice, I will rejoice. Rejoice in the risen King, Jesus. I will rejoice. I will rejoice. Make a joyful noise and raise my voice. I will rejoice in the risen King, Jesus. Oh, we give you praise. What this morning? What? Come on, let's give it more than that. You're worthy to be praised. We give you rejoice. We rejoice in you. Oh, oh, oh. oh Lord, have your way this morning. Lord. Have your way this morning. Awesome. All this afternoon, even. <laughs> How you doing? Great. Let's pray just before you sit down, eh? Father, I thank you that we can gather in the name of Jesus today to, as much as anything, examine what you've called us to do and how you've called us to do it. As the Holy Spirit, we invite you here. We know that all communication and interaction is going to come through your presence. So we open our hearts, we open our minds to you today and we say, welcome. We invite you to stir us. We invite you to upset us even for your glory. And Father, I thank you for every person that's here. And I would ask that there would be a significant impartation of revelation today for every person that's made the effort to be in this place. And Lord, it's our desire to honour you. It's our desire to walk the way that you want us to walk in this time, in this the places that we've come from. And so it really is a privilege to gather today. I ask that your peace would be on this gathering, that your peace would rest on every person. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't you turn to a couple of people around you and say, good on you for being here as you find a seat. Well, I'm really, really pleased that you've come out today, and uh, it is a great, great privilege to have Ian and Judith Green with us. Why don't you guys stand up for a minute so we can give you a big hand. <clears throat> so it's awesome to have them, and we're going to hear from both of them this afternoon. And uh, some of us had the privilege of sitting with Ian yesterday, and we were provoked and encouraged, and any other words? What was that? Frightened. <laughs> it was good. It was a great. It was a great time, and um, I'm really looking forward to what they're going to share today. Look, I'm I'm absolutely convinced that God wants us to walk differently moving forward than we have in the past, and I don't think it's that we've walked wrongly in the past. I think that we're in a different era and a different time, and and God wants is looking for His church to express kingdom in a different way, going forward, and. Um, 
we're committed to that journey, and I think it's also fair to say we don't quite understand what that journey looks like, not in its entirety anyway, but I think we do have some clues. And um, that's one of the things I, I've really enjoyed with Ian is he's provoked our, our thinking forward in that direction. And um, so I'm looking forward to more of that. Now, you actually don't have to agree with everything that Ian says. Just saying. But he might be right. And um, we've got Ian here because I actually believe in what he's saying and the direction that he's leading. And I might not agree with everything he says either. I haven't decided yet. But the fact of the matter is he's going to provoke us in the direction we need to go. So if he says something that upsets you, just grapple with it. Don't throw it out. Just take hold of it and go, look, even if I can't digest it now, I'm just going to, I'm going to wrestle that. I had someone say to me recently, you know, we need more meat. We need more meat in our preaching. And, and, and the same person had said, boy, that was a bit of a tough message. <laughs> You've got to chew meat. And sometimes it has gristle in it. And sometimes you can't even swallow it. You end up spitting it out, don't you? That's what meat looks like. But the fact of the matter is you've got to work with it. And um, I think the, the direction that Ian's taken us is, is a meaty direction. And it don't, won't necessarily just sit in your lap and you go, yes, amen. There's, sometimes you've just got to grapple with it and go, actually, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for our family? What does that mean for our church? What's that mean for our community? So embrace it. Good, eh? Fun. So that's enough. Enough dribble from me. Thanks for being here. It's great to have you. Why don't you give Ian a big hand as he comes? Good afternoon. It is great to be back in Hamilton in the Activate Church. See? Everything's changing. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be back. Thank you for the opportunity to walk with you a little on this uh, journey. There's certainly some levels of um, synergy and um, concepts that uh, we're both tracking with, and hopefully some of the little things that we are learning, maybe they'll give you some light posts along the way, and you'll find your way ho however God wants you to unpack what He is doing in the church today. But... Um, it's absolutely awesome to be with you. And of course, last year, I brought my second lady and my daughter. And this year, I brought my first lady, Judith. So, so yeah, someone says, your better half has arrived. Okay, okay, don't be nasty. <laughs> I want to kick off uh, this afternoon just by building a, a little bit of a kind of um, a framework, we're talking about transformation. We're talking about how we get the kingdom of God into the community of Hamilton and the surrounding areas. And I've called our little talk this afternoon, Architects of Culture or City Planners. City Planners. And I, I was kind of brought up in the church in a period of time where there was a strong emphasis on people having a sense of call to the ministry. And being a call to the ministry meant that you were called to be a pastor because there was not many other jobs out there. 
And uh, I wasn't brought up in the church. I got radically saved at 14, came into the church. Um, kind of, I was saved about three years before I realized there were maps at the back of the Bible. And so when this kind of call, call came to me, um, I thought, well, I'm, going, I'm okay because I'm, I'm 16 and all the pastors that either spoke in our church or churches I went to, they were, they were old, fat, and bald. So I thought, I thought, I got plenty of, I got plenty of time. I got, like I'm 16, I got plenty of time, you know. Not, not being aware that God had other plans. And my complete framework for the call of God was somebody going into full-time Christian service, which in those days, you were either a missionary or a pastor. That was it. As I've kind of moved on 42 years further down the road, I've actually understood that uh, we all need to feel called. We all need a sense of destiny in what we're doing. And some of you are called to be doctors, and some of you are called to be carpenters, and some of you are called to be bookkeepers, and some of you are called to be administrators, and some of you are called to be hairdressers. And there's a whole plethora of occupations out there. And as much and as deeply I feel called to do what Jesus is asking me to do, you can have that same sense of comfort, destiny, feeling, and confidence that the track that you are on is the God track. It's not a second best track. It is the track. It is the track. There was kind of imagery that was kind of portrayed that if you didn't end up in full-time Christian service, then you were probably hadn't quite made the cut. Then I realized when Jesus gave out all the jobs and there were like pastors and missionaries left, he go, okay, you better do that. You better do that. And so, my sense of what I want to bring this afternoon is for us all to have a sense that we are on a track. We've been guided by Jesus. It's sometimes uncomfortable. It's sometimes not the happiest place where we want to be. It may be not be all that we an, an, had anticipated. But we have been called to be architects of culture. And so, in Matthew chapter 28, a verse that you'll know very well, in verse 18, I'm reading firstly from the NIV version. All authority in heaven has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. For many years... 35 years, I would say, I saw that Great Commission text as a relocation text. You went somewhere to fulfill that text. You left New Zealand, and you went and evangelized the pagans in Australia. I left Wales and went to evangelize the pagans in England. And I saw it as a relocation text. But I want to read this to you 
in the uh, message translation, and it has a different angle that will bring, will bring it some force to us. And Jesus, undeterred, went right ahead and gave his charge. God authorized and commanded me to commission you. Go out and train everyone you meet, near and far, in this way of life, making them, uh, marking them by the baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For the kingdom. So you remember the classic story on the shores of Galilee when Jesus says to his disciples, Come and follow me. When I was young, immature, and I had little biblical understanding, I just thought Jesus breezed on the shores of Galilee and says, Okay, boys, come and follow me. Let's go. When you do some background reading, you know that Jesus was there with those disciples between 17 to 23 weeks, depending on what data you read. So he hung out with them for 17 to 23 weeks. When he says, come and follow me, they knew they weren't following a flake. There was some substance. They had talked together. They'd probably discussed politics. They'd probably discussed the, the Roman rule. They, they, they probably talked all kinds of things. They understood a little bit of who he was. Now, we know it wasn't until later until they get the full revelation. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But they knew something. And so Jesus had started his discipleship long before they said, we're on. And as we begin to understand that, we understand our primary purpose is to be architects of culture. Architects of culture. So, so the disciple is to be like his master. So we are trying, by the grace of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we are trying to be like Jesus, yeah? And if we are going to disciple nations, what are we doing? We're trying to make this place like his place. This place like his place. Now, his place, there is forgiveness. There's unconditional love. There's mercy. There's, uh, there's, no, there's no judgment. There's no pain. There's no sorrow. There's no worry. I'm thinking there's a lot of people in this place would like to experience something of that place. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking there's quite a deficit of love, joy, and peace which the Bible says are signs that the kingdom of God has come. And so our role, our function, is to get heaven and drag it into earth and create an atmosphere that will prepare the ground for people to receive Christ. Now, it's quite difficult in my estimation to find a single verse in the New Testament that would tell us we are to lead people to Jesus Christ. I can't think of one. Maybe you can. I know we're to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers. I know in 1, 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 2 it says, somebody plants a seed, somebody waters a seed, but it's God who gives the increase. I know that's so our job is planting and watering. His job is bringing to Jesus. Just hold on to that because that may be a shock to some of us in the room. 
and you can check me out later, get your Bible concordances out and check it out. But if that is the case, if that is the case, I think sometimes we're evangelizing and we should be culturalizing. So we're actually declaring truth. We're declaring truth, and it's going over people's heads. It's going right over. Do you know why it's going over their heads? It's not because they're dumb. It's not because they're stupid. There are two reasons. One, the God of this world has blinded their eyes. And number two, we've not prepared the ground ready for them to receive. So, there's, so there's, there has to be atmospheric change for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to re- so that they can receive the truth that they're actually hearing. So we are happy to declare. We are happy to speak out. We're happy to say, God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. Whoa. Don't you want the joy of the Lord? Whoa. Because there's not been enough preparation to bring atmospheric change so that people can actually receive the truth of Christ. And our job, our primary job as the church, is to bring the kingdom of God into our environment. The vehicle to create culture is the church. That's us, me and you. Not the building, not a Sunday morning gathering, but us, the church, the body of Christ. We are here to change culture on the planet so that people can receive the truth and mercy and goodness of Jesus Christ. You see, we are all sent ones. So the term Apollos or Apostolos, which is not a religious term, it's a military term. And uh, Jesus says, as I have been sent, so am I sending you. You're an apostle, small a. Some people are apostles, big a. But all of us are apostles, small a. We've all been sent. We're all on a mission. We're all on a cause. We all have the power of heaven behind us. We all have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We have waves of the Holy Spirit making room for His kingdom to come and His will to be done on the planet. We are sent ones. We are sent ones. And the idea of being a sent one was that we would disciple nations or to analyze a nation. So, the Apollos in New Testament times was sent when the Roman Empire had gone into a nation and they had conquered it by military might. They knew they could not maintain their position just by brute force. They needed to bring cultural change. And so the way that they would bring cultural change is they would send the Apollos, the apostle, and the armada of ships into a nation and, and in the apostles' team were builders, carpenters, hairdressers, doctors, accountants, road sweepers, and whatever. Because they knew the only way you change a culture is you have to inject a new culture into the culture that will overtake the present culture. Some of you may 
maybe into health products and you may grow your own culture. Anybody do that? At least you don't own up to it because the cameras are on you. Okay. And the Romans, when they wanted to reculturalize a nation, unlike Genghis Khan, for example, Genghis Khan, he went in, conquered, robbed, raped, and pillaged the nations that he took over. But the Roman Empire, they actually thought they were adding benefit to the cultures they were taking over. Yeah, they wanted to control others for sure, but they felt they were going to do something good for the culture. They thought they were going to make their culture better than what it was. So when they landed in France and they saw a lady walking five kilometers to pick up a bucket of water and to walk back five kilometers, and it was nearly half empty by the time she got back, they go, you know, in our culture, we have a way where you don't get the water, the water comes to you. Would you like that? We call that an aqueduct. Say, so, wow. That's pretty cool. Yes, please. I'll have two of them. Thank you very much. <laughs> and sometimes, because of our lack of confidence in the gospel, we actually think when we're sharing our faith that we're actually selling people short. We're not selling people short. What we are bringing is much more superior than what anybody else is enjoying right here and now on the planet who are outside of the kingdom of God. And we have to re-engage in the confidence that we have in the gospel. And so, we are sent ones, and you are sent into your culture you are sent into your workplace. You are sent into your school. You are sent into your street. You are sent into your apartment block. And um, in my second session, I'm going to talk about some of the practical things of how we bring and how we change culture into those environments. But I want to lay this foundation for us because what's really interesting, Jesus says, I, I send you. I, I'm not calling you rabbis. So sometimes we think we have to beat the living daylights out of the person that we're witnessing to with a better argument than what they have. And if we can win the argument, then we're going to win them. Well, well you actually know that's not, been, that's not been very effective. We know that. That's not to say that we shouldn't have a reason for the hope that is within us, but argument against argument doesn't win the deal. Somehow, revelation has got to get into the conversation. And so, he didn't say, I call you rabbis. He didn't say, I call you priests. He said, I call you apostles. I call you sent ones. Do you know what? You've been created for a purpose. You've been created for a reason. You're not in the workplace where you are by chance. You may not enjoy it at the moment. It's not the job that you've always dreamed of. It's not your dream position. But you have been sent. You're a person on a mission. You may be in a university class. You may be in a school. You may, whatever. God has sent. You're a sent one. You have been an emissary sent by God. You 
have gone with that apostolic anointing. And you are there to liberate people in your culture. And you are not there just to declare good news. You are there to disciple that workplace. You are there to engage with the culture and inject that culture with a different culture called the culture of heaven. Let me give you a quick example. So if you're in a workplace where it's very gossipy, very negative, man, that sounds like England. Maybe that's where you got it from. It's only a thought. Anyway, um, so they, people are kind of, you know, mouthing people off. So you disengage from that conversation. You go make a cup of tea or do something. When it's all calmed down and you come back into the conversation, you start affirming people in the room. Say, Susan, that's an awesome bit of work you did last week. That was great. Thank you. And the boss who everybody's complaining about is absolutely inept half brain dead, pathetic, and all those things may be true, but there is something. No one is 100% useless, okay? There is something good about him. Find something that's good and speak that out. Say, so John, I really appreciate, I really appreciate you being a little, little bit flexible when we need a bit of time off. Thank you. Thank you. You don't have to go into all the things he's not doing. Because what we're doing is we're taking some of heaven... And God wants us to delight in those things that are good, pure, wholesome, and lovely. To dwell on those things, speak about those things, levitate around the office on those things. Just speak out the good things that you see. That is a characteristic of God. And we drag that into the culture, and you start pumping that into the culture. People will, not, people will stop gossiping to you. Because, you know, you don't, you don't take that very well. When people want to mouth off and be negative and run someone down, they're not, not going to do it with you because they go, oh, that person, they're on positive pills. That's the, <laughs> they got a, they got a problem. They're on, yeah, whatever. They've probably been to a Tony Robbins seminar. They didn't realize that you've been to a Jesus seminar. They haven't realized that yet. That's, that's to come later. And so we are there to liberate the culture from negativity by bringing heavenly culture into our culture. And there's an exchange of kingdoms, and it's not an imposition of one kingdom upon another. There's an exchange. There's a tilting of the power. See, the apostles, the sent ones, were people of all kinds of different professions. And that's why we have to learn as a body of Christ to pastor this city. Now, we oftentimes think of pastors of churches, of congregations like this. And, and um, a friend of this house, you've had him come many times, Martin Steele, a few months ago, he, he announced to his church that they were, they were ordaining 14 new pastors in their church. Of course, everybody's freaking out, thinking, man, that's a salary bill and a half. Wow. All these people working one day a week. My gosh. <laughs> then he had to explain that these people 
were care group leaders. They cared for the people in the church, pastoral care. And so they prayed for these 14 people, and that was great. Now he says, now I want us to pray for the, these are the pastors of the church, but now I want us to pray for the pastors of the city. Would the hairdressers come forward? Would the social workers come forward? Would the school teachers come forward? Would the doctors come forward? Would those in the caring professions come forward? Would the lawyers come forward? Just about everybody came forward. Because everybody in the workplace have people around them that actually need to be discipled, need to be pastored, need to be reculturalized. Are you with me? And we take the mandate on Monday morning when we leave our home, we are apostles going into the marketplace. We are sent ones. We have a commission from God. We've been divinely appointed by heaven to make a significant difference. And so in your world, whatever is not looking like heaven, that's your job. So if there's gossip, you're working on getting gossip changed into wholesome talk. Yeah? Most workplaces, according to most organizations that investigate cultural tendencies in organizations, most organizations are 85% negative in their culture. And so, it's our opportunity to inject heaven into that. It's our opportunity to bring atmospheric change. It's our opportunity to bring good things into that environment so that we begin to build a platform, an atmosphere that people can actually receive help can receive help so if we think beyond our immediate place of influence so we think of we think of hamilton we think of what cultures in hamilton what activities in hamilton are not reflect in heaven because the, the challenge that we have with declaration gospel is that we have a lot of gong and no dinner. Do you know what that means? We're saying a lot, but there's nothing much to eat. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. No, no, we say, no, 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 you've got to believe and then you'll taste. No, 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 it doesn't say that. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So we're trying to get people to taste something of heaven before they make the commitment. Well, you all know. I don't know if, I don't know if you like wine, but, but, you know, wine comes in all kinds of bottles and all kinds of prices. And, you know, I, I was, went through um, Frankfurt the other day. There was wine, a bottle of wine in Frankfurt, a bottle of wine, 1,900 New Zealand dollars. Well, you have to be thirsty, don't you, to drink that? 
Well, unless you know what's in the bottle, there's no way you're going to cash out here. You know, wait, there's no way you're going to get your credit. No, no, I'll have a little taste and then we'll decide. Oh, can I have a little more? Okay, can I have a little more? <laughs> and see, people in our world, when we start changing culture, we're giving them an opportunity to taste something of heaven. Taste unconditional love. Taste mercy. Taste goodness with no strings attached. Taste it. So this is what is happening when we're dragging heaven into our world. And so we think, we think of Hamilton and we say, so domestic violence, does that reflect heaven? It doesn't, does it? So how do we fix those families then? Because there's issues there, isn't there? As often there's anger, disappointment, there's frustration. There's low self-image. There's issues there. So we, the church of Jesus Christ, we say, we have an answer. We're going to fix that. We're going to change the culture of that family. We're going to get heaven into that family. Wow. It's called discipleship pre-conversion. So the guy that's beating up his wife all the time, maybe there's been issues there all of his life with anger and difficulty. We find out what the very roots of that is. Sometimes he may need deliverance. Sometimes he may need co cognitive psychology, some help in that area. Sometimes he needs some other levels of counseling and support. Sometimes he just needs some tools of anger management so he's not keep on pushing his wife away and his kids away. See, and heaven has an answer for that. And so we start discipling that family. We don't even ask them to come to church. Why would we do that? <laughs> no, it's way too premature. No, we start being church. That's, this is the going, okay? This is the going. This is not geographical location. In our everyday world, you're having a coffee at some coffee shop, and there's, 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 a, there's a tiff going, there's an almond going on, and somehow you get wisdom and you get engaged in that, and you go, you know, I think, man, I, I understand what's going on here. I think I could help. You don't pull your Bible out. You don't start quoting Bible verses. Did you notice that Jesus only used the Bible on religious people? Did you not notice that? Hello. You read the Bible? He only used the Bible on religious people. The common people heard him gladly because he spoke in stories and parables that they understood very well. The issue is truth, not the source of truth, because all truth comes ultimately from the truth. Okay. Anyway, that's just free information. So we look at sickness, long-term sickness. We say heaven has an answer to that. Yeah, let's grab heaven into that environment. We say unemployment and the knock-on effects of that. No, no, we have an answer to that. It's called pre-discipleship before they come to faith. 
It's called meeting a felt need before they discover their real need. Homelessness, bullying, racial discrimination, the ecclesia, the church, the body of Christ carrying the kingdom of God. We start bleeding goodness and mercy and kindness and love into our immediate atmosphere. And there comes a shift. What's really interesting is you only need a little bit, a little bit of influence to have a huge impact. So how come in your country and in my country that the gay rights movement got bills passed to same-sex marriage? I'm not arguing the point, good or bad, and just how did they do that? Of 51% of the people in New Zealand, gay. Well, how do they do it then? <laughs> no, no, there's, there's a minority here, as there is in our country. In our country, they say less than 4%, but they, they manage to get it through. As a small number can have a massive influence. We don't need 30 or 40% of the population to come to faith before the nation's won. No, no, no. If we have just four, five, six, seven percent of the nation functioning as the body of Christ, bleeding the kingdom of God, down in the culture of heaven, into our environment, then we see change. I'm going to show you a little video. It's, it's an illustration of what I'm trying to communicate with you. And then I'm going to come back, top it off, take questions, and hopefully have a break. Thank you. In 2005, we released the DVD Transformation in Elk River, Minnesota. It was a riveting, inspiring story of a community undergoing transformation. The question is, did it last? Did it grow? Was that a flash in the pan? Well, let me tell you, fasten your seatbelts because you are about to watch Transformation in Elk River, Minnesota, part two, and it's better and bigger than ever, but better yet, it brings more honor and more glory to God. Welcome to Transformation in Elk River, Part 2. In Elk River, Minnesota, residents declared that their city is God's city. From the mayor's office to the domains of education and business, this is a community committed to seeing their city transformed by Jesus Christ. Today, their story continues. In 1999, Ed Savoso called me and told me that there was a detonator city in my region. And he said that it was Elk River, Minnesota. Well, I had never heard of a detonator city before, but Ed explained that it was a city that was implementing the principles of transformation to such an extent that they pre presented a working prototype for other cities to see that it is feasible and that they actually could then help the other cities to implement 
transformation in their own cities. Fueled by a desire to see God move in their city, pulpit and marketplace leaders in Elk River came together in prayer. This resulted in a common vision to see their city transformed by Jesus Christ. The Elk River testimony has since detonated transformation in other cities across the United States, as well as cities in other nations. Just a few weeks ago, we had a team from Northfield uh, containing both uh, marketplace ministers as well as uh, church leaders. And uh, we came up here and connected, heard the stories from the people that were up here working. And that time really proved to be a significant spark, I think, in helping the marketplace people in Northfield get more uh, involved, more focused, and, and more intentional about working towards city transformation. These meetings, these visits by other cities have just been so important to help detonate those other cities into transformation. Elk River's continuing journey of transformation remains rooted in prayer and the unity that exists between marketplace and pulpit. The weekly prayer meeting remains the foundation of the move of God's Spirit in the Elk River community and beyond. The marketplace ministers come in and uh, um, they're talking about uh, what the Lord's been doing and then we rejoice with them and uh, continue to anoint them, pray for them and send them forth. And uh, it's a wonderful marriage between the pulpit and the marketplace. I had um, fallen off my rollerblades, broke my tailbone in two places, and I limped into um, the Prey Elk River meeting on Tuesday, received prayer and received healing at that moment. This alliance between pulpit and marketplace ministers acted as a catalyst in Elk River's transformation process and the city now bears the fruit of this unity. In Elk River, the, tr uh, the process of transformation has not been easy. And there's a number of us that have laid down a, a foundation of prayer. But in that foundation of prayer, the Lord is now allowing us to see the fruit of our prayers. And as we see in the city, we've, we're watching the city grow. We're watching the city mature, the, the people in it, the city itself. And it's, it's so exciting. And we love sharing what God is doing in the city. But we do know there's so much more to come. Ken and Carrie Beaudre are business and intercessory prayer leaders in the city. Since embracing transformation principles within his company, Ken has gained a broader vision for seeing transformation in other nations around the world. For our company at Beaudre Oil and Propane, we have a plan of church planning in Europe, in Ukraine especially, and we've got uh, some church planning going on in Afghanistan and some of the surrounding countries. We're feeding the poor, we're giving out Bibles, we're seeing transformation villages in the Ukraine. There's 23,000 villages in Ukraine, and we're seeing transformation models. And while transformation is spreading outwards from Elk River, in the city itself, there has been a focus on three main areas. The ongoing city reaching and prayer movement known as Pray Elk River has really been focusing in these last several years around three key areas. The development of transformation churches, the development of kingdom companies, and then this issue of systemic poverty. To help facilitate and nurture the growing number of businesses interested in adopting transformation principles, a Pray Elk River Business Roundtable was established. Pray Elk River Business Roundtable is an expansion of the current and ongoing Pray Elk River movement. Its purpose is to usher in the kingdom of God 
through principles of transformation, targeting the business community. But also, one of its purposes is to uh, grow and identify what a kingdom company is all about. As part of the Prey Elk River Business Roundtable team, I really have a wonderful opportunity to, uh, to go out with the team and, and pray on site for businesses. And it's really, it's really becoming an important part of my life. We just thank you for So when um, the group came to my office and prayed and we invited Christ into my business, um, to, to, as, as he being the one who owns the business and not me, and then I'm just um, kind of the conduit through which the business can occur. I am in the process of setting up an organization for businesses who you know, want to be kingdom businesses to really tithe on the business, not just necessarily their own income, and with the purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission, um, you know, feeding the hungry and you know, discipling the people, and, and doing that by serving the local communities we live in, the neighboring cities, the state, and even globally. In, in the fall of 2007, the Prey Elk River Servant Leadership Team blessed us tremendously by, by coming in and helping us prayer walk the dealership. Um, at, at that point, we dedicated the business to the Lord. And, and from that point forward, we've really seen God's hand move and it's all centered on prayer. We've had healings, physical healings. We've had deliverances, salvations. People come here for prayer. This idea of, of your, your business being your ministries has really become, I mean, it's, it's my life now. We did a Bible study in the very early days of our business on the book Anointed for Business. And um, that was a time when it was kind of an opportunity for us to say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to commit this, uh, our, uh, the business to the Lord, our lives are committed to the Lord, and we're going to be authentic in how we approach this. If I profess my faith openly on Sundays and at church and I serve on the church board, I can't go to work and then somehow run my business with a different set of principles or values. That's dual citizenship and I've, uh, I've tried it, it doesn't work. Despite facing opposition, there are those that are choosing to run their business based on kingdom principles and God is blessing them. When we started out, we had several other colleagues that were planning to join us in, in the creation of our business and as we were laying out our mission statement and creating some advertising materials, found out that they didn't like the idea of a, a Christian-based business, and they left. And three and a half years later, there are 11 of us, and we're hiring two more. And so we feel, you know, the only way to do this is to do it with kingdom principles, and then God takes care of the bottom line. Previously, Prey Elk River leaders visited Scott Powell at his car dealership and prayed with him about purchasing some vacant land to expand his business for kingdom purposes. We now reclaim this land for God's purposes. What Satan once intended for evil, we know that you are going to now use for good. God provided that land, and today, Scott's entire focus is to see Jesus lifted up in and through his business. Besides meeting needs within the company, the dealership is always looking for innovative ways to bless the community. When we prayed over the land, uh, we were again blessed with the, uh, with the land and building developer that we have here. Uh, we went to the city to uh, ask for a specific sign. And as soon as we started building that sign, it just came to us that the Lord really wanted to get his message on there. And over half the messages are the Lord's word, as 40 to 50,000 people a day drive by that sign. Working hand-in-hand hand with those in the marketplace are the pulpit ministers. 
church leaders and congregations have embraced the transformational paradigms, and believers are equipped to daily make a difference in their sphere of influence. Transformation churches develop transformed followers of Jesus who are being used by God to transform their church, their community, and their world. To help train and equip the members of our congregation, and uh, we pray other congregations, to grow as transformed followers of Christ, we've developed a seven-week small group study series called Faith Beyond Belief. It's available as a free download at www.transformourworld.org. And uh, we have found it to be tremendously helpful in terms of taking the, the five paradigms of nation transformation and the principles of prayer evangelism from Luke 10 and applying them in a practical way that the average congregational member can grasp and learn how do I really live these things out in my daily life. A Transformation Church's Pastors Forum has been established for pulpit ministers to help give them a better understanding of what a transformational church is all about. A group of pastors can sign up at www.transformourworld.org. They'll be uh, uh, put together with six or eight other like-minded pastors from around the world. And uh, once a month, they'll make a two-hour conference call or an internet connect of some kind and have an opportunity to share in relationship building, in prayer and support. And then during the second half of that call, a case study will be presented by one of those pastors of an issue that he or she is facing on the local scene. And these transformation paradigms and principles can really be applied in a practical way at the congregational level. And finally, an issue concerning both pulpit and marketplace ministers is that of systemic poverty. Systemic poverty covers areas of material poverty and uh, spiritual poverty, motivational poverty, and relational poverty. And probably everybody in the city is poor in one of those areas. And what I've seen happening and what we want to have happen in the city is that, that every believer, every Christian in the city would um, take what they are rich in and go to somebody who is poor in that, in that area and then give to them in some way. The goal of Super Summer Serve is to give kids the opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus, bringing a blessing to the community. Today I went, went to a lady's house and helped her clean around the house, helped her clean around the yard. And it was pretty good and when she asked us who we're working for, I just said in Jesus' name. We're working for Jesus. Today is the first day that Second Harvest will be coming to our location and we'll be using the Cornerstone building, his building, to, uh, to dedicate uh, food to the folks that are in, in, in a dire need. And so we expect that we'll have uh, three or four hundred families coming to fill grocery carts uh, with food. In fact, the Lord has uh, is is driven us as a company to be supportive of what ultimately He wants to see, which is the end of uh, systemic poverty and, and to feed the hungry. Local businessman DJ Backen is a leading force behind a disaster relief ministry called Hopefilled Hands, which operates on a national level. We go out, we work with flood victims and hurricane victims and, and going to rebuild. And so we use the, the church as volunteers and they support us as we go out and serve in our community. Great leaders Mission Rwanda is a partnership with World Vision, connecting the churches businesses and schools of Elk River with an area development project 
in the AIDS-ravaged community of Caraba, Rwanda. We've gone from zero uh, child sponsorships over there to well over 600 now, which equates out to about a quarter of a million dollars a year is now coming out of the Elk River area. And now we have the result that is the community is being blessed for the Lord. The number one thing for me is elimination of systemic poverty. That's the paradigm shift that will show that we are a city transformed. I can't imagine any other evidence of a, of a transformed city that would make any difference to anybody. Even though the stories of what God is doing in the community of Elk River continue to pour in, there are many who believe that they are merely seeing the start of what God wants to do in the city. For the pulpit and marketplace ministers, a passion and commitment remains to see the entire city of Elk River transformed by Jesus Christ. This is a new season. Forget about the old, this is new. There's a breath of God for transformation. I expect an increase in transformation in business, in society like we've never seen before. Discipling that Love Elk River will eventually do will be to disciple the, all believers in the city to know who they are to a dark and hurting world and then act out of that 24-7 wherever they are. I really believe this is life the way we were meant to live it. Prayer evangelism, meeting felt needs, that's my life. I believe that these transformation paradigms are absolutely essential to see the Church of Jesus Christ released into the marketplace to reach their cities and their nations for Jesus Christ. How good is that? How good is that? That's a part of the game plan. We're about no small thing. We're not on about filling this room six times on a weekend. That would be way too small. You're not convinced? That would be way too small. We're on about a city where the culture of heaven comes into the city, opens people's hearts to make Jesus Lord so that the culture of heaven becomes more impregnated in the city. So. We are cultures, we are architects of culture, and our job, I say this carefully, to stop evangelizing and start culturalizing. Culturalizing means discipling. Because as we begin to disciple the culture, the openness to Jesus Christ becomes greater and more obvious than we've ever discovered before. Amen. Is that a good start? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. God bless you. Sheridan. Oh, you look like stunned mullets. <laughs> Best you go have a coffee. I think it's in the foyer and stuff. Go and take 10 minutes, come back again, and we will carry on. Yeah, it's I'll unreliable. Do. That's why we declare this at
Well, it's awesome to have Judith with us today as well. So that's absolutely wonderful. So why don't you give her a big hand as she comes? Well, good afternoon. I need you to talk to me, otherwise I feel very lonely up here. <laughs> it's really good to be here. It's my first time to Hamilton. I've been to New Zealand probably two or three times, um, but never been here before, so the best place, right, good. <laughs> right, so in this session, um, I'm going to be speaking about transformation of our, of our thinking, because, you know, Ian's been talking about the practice of transforming our world. But it all begins with us. Um, if we're not transformed in our thinking, then we're not going to transform anybody else. And so during this session, I want to speak about the thoughts that limit us, how sometimes we put almost a ceiling on how far we can go. Um, we're going to talk about how do we change that. And then we're going to talk about how did, do we develop bigger thinking. Because we're only going to change our world if we start thinking something new. If we keep doing the same old thing, nothing changes. And so we need to think new thoughts if we're going to change our communities and our neighbours and the people that we work with. So that's where we're going this afternoon. And I want to start by telling you a story. This is a, very, this is a true story of something that happened to me probably about, I'm trying to think, probably about eight years ago. And it's probably my most scary thing that ever happened to me. So I thought I'd tell you this story because it really relates to our thinking processes. So I had gone on a um, speaking trip to the Czech Republic. Um, I'd gone to speak at a women's conference and um, I love to do that. That's something that's really on my heart, to speak to women. And so, yeah, I'd had a really good trip. You know, I was on my way home. I checked in my luggage at the airport, um, gone through security, and I was just sitting waiting for my plane. And, you know, I was sort of thinking about, you know, what would I need to do when I get home and all of those things, sort of minding my own business. And then suddenly... Over the loudspeaker, I heard, would Judith Green please go to security? And I was like, oh, that's me. So I was thinking, oh, perhaps I left something. You know, when they scan your bags, I thought, oh, perhaps I left something there. So I just sort of wandered back. And um, I was quite surprised because there was this big group of security guards all hovering around a suitcase, which was mine. And I thought, that's strange, because I checked my luggage through. So I wasn't expecting to see it again until I arrived in Birmingham. So I was like, why have they got my suitcase? So they said to me, um, is this your suitcase, Mrs. Green? And I went, yes. And then they said... Did you know that there's a gun in your luggage? And I was like, no. I don't know. And I was in an absolute state of shock. A gun? 
how possibly could that be? Then they do the, did you pack it yourself? Did you leave it unattended? No. Um, and I was like, no, I'm sure you've got that wrong. They said, well, we're going to scan it and we'll show you, you know, the picture of the gun. So they scanned it through and sure enough, there was something that looked shaped like a gun. Well, you know when you're a little bit panicked and you say something really stupid? <laughs> that was the moment. And I said, um, do you think it could be my hairdryer? And they looked at me, no. Because, you know, a hairdryer is that shape, isn't it? You know, so I thought that was logical. Um, so then they said, we can't open your suitcase. We will have to wait for the police to come. So they said, I want you to go and sit over there. And I was like, well, am I going to miss my plane? And they said, well, might do. So it was the longest five minutes of my life sitting on this seat. And my mind went to some very strange places. So I was thinking, okay, Ian's in Canada. My children are in England. And I'm going to be in a Czech Republic jail. You know, I was thinking, I don't know. I don't know, I even have anybody's phone number in the Czech Republic that could help me. I'm just going to be here all alone. I'm going to be off in the police station. They're going to put me in a cell. And I was just, my mind had just gone to those places, you know. And I was like, what is happening to me? So five minutes later, the police arrived. They took me into a little side room. All these security guards who obviously thought this was the biggest excitement of the day, so they all came in as well. And they're all sort of like hovered around my suitcase. So then they started opening it, taking everything out, which is a little bit embarrassing, isn't it? So everything came out, no gun. So I'm thinking, yes. And then they went down the outside pocket, pulled out a toy gun, and then it dawned on me, I had borrowed my son's suitcase for this trip, and he was only a small child, and he had been playing sort of 007, that sort of game, you know, and had obviously put a toy gun in the side pocket. So, I mean, they were all very nice to me, I have to say, and they sort of almost laughed with me. And, and I sort of ended up by thanking them for their fantastic security. I said, well, this never got picked up in Birmingham when I, when I flew out. So, um, you know, thank you so much. You're so secure. And I went on my way and ended up coming home. But those five minutes of... Sitting on that seat, my mind had gone mad. You know, I was in a jail. I was going to be there for years. You know, our mind is such a powerful tool, isn't it? And it can take us to places that we don't want to go. And usually, the things that we fear are never going to happen, actually but we can often live in that state. 
um, because our mind is so powerful. And so, yeah, that experience taught me a big lesson that, yeah, it was a negative experience, but really it didn't end up being as bad as I thought. And, um, yeah, that was just, but it was a scary moment, I have to say. And up now, when I pack my suitcase, I make sure I do not have my son's suitcase. And I've checked the side pockets. So, yeah. But, you know, our thinking is so important. The way we think, the way we look at things, the way we process what's going on in our lives. Um, there's a quote that says, you are what you think. If you think you won't, you won't. If you think you will, you will. Now, just thinking about that for a minute, you know, so often we think, oh, I can't do that. So what do we do? We don't even try. Because we've already decided that I can't do that. So, yeah, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. No, we won't do it because we won't even try. And I think so often in our lives we put a ceiling on what we want, what we're going to do in life. We think, well, I've only got these gifts. I'm only that intelligent. I've only got that amount of money. And so we say, this is how far I can go in life. But, you know, God is so much bigger than our thinking. And he wants us to stretch our thinking. He wants us to grow our thinking. Because he has got amazing plans. He has amazing plans for our planet, our towns, our cities, our neighbors. And all he says to us is, come and join me in those plans. You know, don't put a ceiling on your life. Don't say, this is how far I can go. Just be willing to be open to receive new thinking and, and to do what God wants us to do. Some, just some Bible verses that I want us to look at because, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about our thinking. Proverbs 23 verse 7 says, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Everything we do starts with a thought. You know, all our actions have started in our minds. And so if we can get our minds sorted out, it's really going to help our lives to be effective. You know, our thinking is the doorway of our lives. Um, Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, Guard your heart. It is the fountain of life. Love that verse. You know, we have to be so careful on what we allow to come into our minds. You know, the world wants to sort of infiltrate our thinking, but we have to take control over that and say, no, I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to think that. I'm going to think what God says. I'm going to have godly thoughts. And, you know, we really have to be careful on the thought patterns that we allow into our minds. Now, probably one of the key verses that I love and I've really thought about over the last few years is Romans 12, verse 2, which says, Be transformed 
by the entire renewal of your mind, by its new ideals and attitude. You know, I wish when we became a Christian that God just sort of like took our minds out and gave us a new one, and that was it. And we just lived, wow, in this God realm. But that doesn't happen. Um, It says, be transformed. It's something we have to do. We have to renew our minds. We have to take on new thinking. We have to apply ourselves to that. It doesn't just happen. Um, I've, I've done some quite a lot of research on the mind. And um, I came across um, a woman in America. And she's a professor in cognitive neuroscience. Um, her name's Dr. Caroline Leaf. I don't know if any of you have... Yeah, some of you have heard of her. Um, She's written a number of books, and she does quite a lot of speaking. She's become quite... um, A lot of people want to hear what she has to say because she's obviously a scientist, but she's also a Christian. And so um, her research has been a lot to do with the mind and our brains. And what she came up with through her research is that the quality of our thoughts actually change the shape of our brain. So she's done lots of research, she's done written theses and all sorts of things and and I thought that is incredible because you know God tells us we have to renew our minds But science is now saying that when you do that, actually you change the shape of your brain. So she says, when you think, you build thoughts, and these become physical substances in your brain. And um, she often draws sort of like diagrams of, of trees that grow in your brain. And she's got healthy trees on one side, And then she's got like withered up trees on the other. But she says, that's what actually happens in our brains. Depending on the thoughts that we take on, it actually changes the shape of our brain. I thought that was so incredible. And she says that we are designed to be able to stand outside of ourselves and observe our own thinking and change it. And that's what Romans 12 verse 2 is telling us to do. It says we've got to renew our mind. It's not an optional extra, something that, oh, well, if I feel like it, I'll do it. It's actually crucial if we're going to have God thoughts, we're going to impact our society. We've got to take on God's thoughts. We've got to renew our minds. Um, Dr. Caroline Leaf also said that You know, our thinking is not just a spiritual discipline, but it has profound effects, not only on our spiritual health, but our emotional and physical health. It's incredible. And so the research shows that 75 to 98% of mental, physical, and behavioral illnesses come from one's thought life. Isn't that incredible? 75 to 98%. 
wow, I thought that was incredible. And it's so staggering to think of that statistic. So it means only 2 to 25% of mental and physical illnesses come from the environment and from our genes. So doesn't it tell us that our thinking is so crucial to our lives? You know, it's our physical, our mental, and our spiritual lives will be transformed if we transform our thinking, if we actually do what Romans 12 verse 2 is telling us, to be transformed by the entire renewal of our mind. That's incredible. Another verse that I've thought about is 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5, where it says, taking every thought captive. What does that actually mean? It means that actually we become like policemen to our thoughts. I used to think, I was probably really stupid, but I used to think thoughts were just these sort of random things that came into our minds and really, yeah, there wasn't much I could do about it. Yeah, obviously I wasn't going to think something really evil, but I didn't take a lot of time or didn't put in a lot of effort in renewing my mind. I just thought it was just... Yeah, I didn't think it was particularly a spiritual thing to do. But that verse says, taking every thought captive. So what we're doing is when a thought comes into our mind, we're saying, well, is that thought helpful? What do I need to do with that thought? Do I need to get rid of it? Or do I need to dwell on that thought and develop that thought? You know, we often use that um, term a train of thought. And the question we have to go ask is, where is our thought taking us? You know, that story I started with, my train of thought had taken me to prison. I was never going to go there, but my thoughts had already gone there. And so often, we often take a path down a train of thought whether it's, you know, we've been to the doctor and there's possibly cancer, but we've already got it almost because our, our mind has taken us down that path. You know, at the beginning of the year, um, I'd been for a mammogram and then they called me back. Now, you know, that is, it is scary, but I had a choice what was I going to do? Was I going to go, okay, it must be cancer? What, you know, and you start developing that thought further? Or do we say, no, I'm not going there. I'm trusting God. I'm going to go with peace. You know, and um, it ended up being all fine and I was all clear. But, you know, so many people spend so much of their times going down this train of thought of destruction um, instead of taking their thoughts captive and saying, I'm not going there, you know. And um, another experience that I had was, you know, Ian's always travelled a lot um, ever since we've been married. 
um, he's been traveling. And so we often joke and say, although we've been married 25 years, probably we've only been married 12 because we've probably only been together for 12 of those years. Um, now, there were times in my life where I saw this as very negative. So I'd be at home with the children, and Ian would be out preaching, overseas, traveling. And I'd go to church on a Sunday, and I'd look around the church. You know, everybody else was in their families. You know, husband, wife, kids... And at the end of church, you know, people would say things to me like, oh, where's Ian today? And I'd be like, oh, he's in Canada. Um, and they'd go, oh, how long is he away? Two weeks. Oh, and that'd be the end of the conversation. And I used to allow that to make me feel very negative about people. Like, I become very negative about people at church because I go, oh, they're so uncaring. Like, they're only interested where Ian is. They don't care about me and my children. And so I'd go home from church and I'd just be visualizing all these happy families having their Sunday roast. And there I was, just me and the children. And I often allowed my mind to become very negative about my situation. Poor old Judith, at home, on her own, with the two children. And there's Ian. He's probably gone out for some really swanky meal after church. And everybody loves him. And it's all right for him, isn't it? You know, but poor old me, I'm at home on my own. And... After a while, I had to start saying, actually, this isn't making me feel very good. I felt very negative. You know, I, I sort of resented the ministry that Ian was doing. And I had to come to a point where I changed my thinking. And I started going, okay... Right, don't like how I'm feeling? I'm going to change this. I'm going to renew my mind. And so I started thinking differently. I started going, okay, Ian is away quite a lot. I am so blessed. Number one, I'm married. Number two, I married a Christian. Number three, my husband is ministering. Yeah, he's fantastic. <laughs> he's ministering all over the world people are being blessed churches are being planted in Europe I am part of that I may not be there physically all the time but I'm actually part of that I'm releasing my husband to do that God's really pleased with me that I do that and I started going actually I'm really blessed I've got a lovely home I've got two beautiful children I have food. I've got everything I need. I am blessed. And you know, when I changed my thinking, like, I felt so much better. My attitude towards people at church changed. Instead of going, oh, they don't care about me, I thought, well, yeah, you know, they don't understand my lifestyle because it's quite unusual. 
But, you know, they're not, they're not bad people. Um, they're showing interest. They're showing, you know, asking where Ian is and things like that. And just by changing my thinking on that one issue changed my life. It, instead of being negative, I became positive. I started thanking God for my life, thanking God for the privilege that we've had in traveling and for impacting people around the world. And that is renewing our mind. It's taking on a different thought, saying, no, I will not take on negative thinking. I'm actually going to think differently. I'm going to take on God's thinking. And it did. It totally changed my life. And so there are certain thoughts that we have that really do limit our lives. You know, some of the things that we often come out of our mouths are actually what's actually in in our heads. You know, we would say, oh, I'm never going to dot, dot, dot. Oh, I could never, I could never speak. Oh, oh, I couldn't play an instrument. You know, I'm not as good as somebody else. Oh, I'm not, I don't think I've got any gifts, which isn't true because God has given us all gifts. And so when we start comparing ourselves to other people, we say, well, I'm not as good as them, so I won't even bother. I won't even try. I won't. I won't take on anything new because, well, I'll never be as good as somebody else. And we start dwelling and putting ourselves down. And that is so wrong because God has gifted all of us. And we are all multi-gifted. And God never makes a mistake. He's given us all individual gifts. And he says, you don't have to be the same as somebody else because actually I I need that multiplicity of gifts within my body. That's why I've given you that gift, you that gift. And all he says is, use what you have in your hand. And, um, you know, years ago, I would never have thought that I could stand up and speak. You know, I was very shy. I'm still quite shy. Um, I just never thought I had anything to offer. I thought, well, I've never been a pastor's wife in the sense of running a church Um, and I thought well you know I don't have anything to give that was such a wrong perception and it took actually a friend from New Zealand who is working with us in Europe and she sort of although she was my friend she actually gave me almost a bit of a kick and she said Judith you have got so much within you and you need to let that out. And I was like, oh, no, I don't think I've got anything to say, Sue. Yes, you have. And she said, you need to start mentoring other people. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. So she said, well, I'm going to teach you. And so she came around my house, like when Ian was away, and we did like a mentoring course together. And she taught me, and then at the end she said, right, you need to start mentoring people. And, you know, I started, and I was surprised with what God had put in me. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize that I had that inside. 
But because I had so limited myself, I'd sort of compared myself to other leaders, I thought, well, I'm not a Bobby Houston, I'm not a Joyce Meyer, well, then I can't speak. Well, God doesn't need any more Bobby Houstons or Joyce Myers. He needed some Judith Greens. And so, and so, you know, whatever God has put in our hands, it's for us to use. So, you know, and I know when I often speak to women, that women, we are very bad at comparing ourselves to others. I think men tend to be more competitive but women are comparative. And we always look at someone else and think, oh, I wish I had their hair. Oh, oh, they're so much slimmer than me. Well, most people are. Um, but actually, you know, God has given us all gifts. And all he says is, use what you've got. Develop what you've got. Don't see what you've got as something negative because my gifts are good gifts. For, you, for us all to use. So where, how do we change our thinking? Because, you know, we do often get stuck in a rut. We're, in a, we're used to thinking a certain way and we think we can't change. I'm a living testimony that you can change. Like, I'd probably lived 40-odd years thinking in one way but just over the last probably 10, 12 years, you know, I've started thinking differently about myself, about the gifts God has given me. And when I've thought differently, opportunities start happening. You know, and, um, it, and it's incredible when we're open to what God wants us to do. And we're willing to think differently about ourselves and our gifts, opportunities happen. It's amazing. So how do we, first of all, how do we start to think differently? How do we get better thoughts about ourselves? How do we change the quality of our thinking? First thing I would say is we have to align our thoughts to God's thoughts. You know, Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So what do we have to do? We have to say, what does God say about me? What is his heart for my life? You know, God's thoughts are way bigger than our thoughts. But all he says to us is, align your thinking to mine. Allow your mind to be bigger than what it is right now. Take on my thinking about your life and what you can achieve. You know, probably one of my all-time favorite verses that I've gone back to many times in my life is Jeremiah 29 verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I love that verse because it's such a positive verse. God has amazing plans and all he says is, 
Come on, you can do it. With my help, you can achieve anything. Isaiah 62 verse 3 is another one of my favorite verses. It says, you shall be so beautiful and prosperous as to be thought of as a crown of glory and honor in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem exceedingly beautiful in the hand of God. I often have a picture of God holding us in his hand. A beautiful jewel, a diamond, shining, reflecting the light. Do you know, so often we don't think of ourselves like that at all. We go, well, I'm not like this, I'm not like that, I'm not very good, I'm, I'm imperfect. Yeah, we are all imperfect. But God doesn't see that. He holds us in his hands and he sees us as beautiful, as people that he can use. You know, Jesus is no longer on our planet, but we are. And we are there to reflect God's love to our communities. And we can do that because we are beautiful jewels in God's hand. We just have to start believing that. We have to change our thinking. You know that verse, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You know, whatever God asks us to do, he doesn't leave us to do it on our own. That's the amazing thing. He says, you can have my strength. Wow, to have God's strength? Incredible. The almighty God says you can have my strength. Wow, there must be nothing that we can't achieve then if we've got his strength. So we have to make decisions, don't we? Are we going to listen to God's words about us? Or are we going to allow negativity to dominate our thinking? That's a choice. That's all about renewing our mind. So what do we do with that? So first of all, we're saying, yeah, God, I want to start aligning my thinking to you. I'm going to start renewing my mind. I'm going to change what I think about. Because I know that the person that I am originates in the thoughts I think. You know, my life can be transformed by thinking something different. I'm going to start policing my thoughts. I'm going to, when a thought comes into my mind, I'm going to say, is this a helpful thing? Is this going to help my life? Is this going to grow my life? If not, we dump it. And we say, I'm not going there. I'm not thinking about that. I'm going to change the way I think. I'm going to think about good things. I love those, that verse in Philippians 4 verse 8, about thinking about good things, things that are honorable. When we start thinking like that, our mind is transformed. We start thinking the thoughts that God wants for us. When we praise, that changes our thinking. You know, we can be negative about our lives and our finances and our homes and our families. But, you know, when we start praising for what we have instead of what we haven't got, that changes our thinking because we're all blessed. If we live in the West and we're having 
two, three meals a day. We are incredibly blessed. And yet we're so often, again, we compare ourselves to somebody else who's got a bigger home. Yeah, their life seems to be better than mine. But you know what? Praise is such a key to changing our thinking. It's to actually thank God for what we have. Thank God for who we are. Thank God for his transforming power in our lives. And thank him for the gifts that he's given us that we can use for his kingdom. You know, I think God doesn't just want us to think positive thoughts or think healthy thoughts, but he wants to grow and develop our thinking. You know, there's a quote, if I'm going to have what I've never had, I need to think a thought that I've never thought. Let me read that again. If I'm going to have what I've never had, I need to think a thought that I've never thought. Yeah. I, I sometimes think about technology and how it's changed in my lifetime. I mean, 20 years ago, we didn't, we didn't have a mobile phone. Um, probably, I don't even know, we probably had a computer. But the thought that one day I would have a phone in my hand, I could FaceTime and see my daughter in Australia, free of charge, <laughs> that's even better, um, is incredible. But somebody had to have that thought that this is possible. You know, um, if you've got an iPhone and you, we were talking about it at, before we came, we were talking about Siri. I can't get my head around Siri. How does Siri know so many things? It's like, who is Siri? Who created Siri? But it's amazing, isn't it? Anything we want to know... We can just Google it or ask Siri, and we get the answer. Like, 20 years ago, that wouldn't have even entered our thinking that that was possible. But somebody, somewhere on this planet, had to have a new thought and, and say, well, actually, that's possible. And, you know, how much more as Christians, with God in our lives, does he want us to have bigger thoughts like we're talking about transforming our communities. Now, probably, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we would have been happy just to have 20, 30, 50, 100 people in our church. Oh, that would be good, wouldn't it? 100 people coming to church on a Sunday. But now we're actually thinking differently. We're saying, well, how can we transform our community? Like, we're not about just people coming to this building on a Sunday. We're actually talking about transforming our neighbours. We're talking about influencing in business, in our education system. It's a new way of thinking. And it is challenging. It's stretching. But how exciting that we can actually think about changing our city. Hamilton could be the city where God kingdom has come to earth. Wouldn't that be amazing? So God doesn't just come to this church or on a Sunday, but he's actually alive in our communities and things are changing. But we've got to take a step 
in our thinking. We've got to start saying, well, okay, God, what do you want me to do then? Now, I had a lovely conversation yesterday with Gloria. You all know Gloria from this church? And she picked me up from the airport. What a lovely lady. And she was just sharing with me a life story and telling me about the things that she's doing. And I thought, wow, she is transforming her community. Like she, she was telling me about her mother's and daughter's organization she started. She takes people to hospital who don't have family around them. She sits and holds their hand during, after operations. She helps younger mums who are suffering with anxiety. I take some shopping. And I thought, wow, that's what transforming our community is all about. It's saying, God, give me an idea that I've never thought of before. That I can actually change my area. I can change my neighbours. I can change my workplace. Just give me an idea. Now, some people tend to be too spiritual about this. And they sort of go, oh, is it a good idea or is it a God idea? Do you know what? Nothing good comes from the devil. So if you have a good idea, where does it come from? It's going to have come from God, hasn't it? And so I think that good idea, God idea, we can forget that. And we can just go, if I get a good idea, why not have a go? Why not? You never know what impact you can have when you say, God, give me a new thought. Give me something I've never thought of doing before. You never know. Gloria one day obviously thought of this idea, gave it a go. And, the, and she was telling me about the different people's lives have been changed because of just stepping out and having a go. And I was just so encouraged by that yesterday. So I think all of us have that potential to say, God, I need to think something bigger than I've, I've done so far. You know, my life's been, yeah, I may have been impacted a few people, but that's only the beginning. That's only the beginning. And it doesn't matter what age we are either. We can take on a new thought. We can be in, in our 50s like us. We can take on a new thought. We might be young. We can take on a new thought. We might be in our 70s. Never too late, is it? You know, our lives, we can always be used by God. We can always have a bigger thought. Do you know, some, I've noticed that the process of, of bigger thinking can come in different ways. You know, sometimes the process of a bigger thought begins with obedience to a small step. You know, sometimes we don't have the full plan of where that step's going to lead us, but we're obedient to what God asks us to do. It might be just something small to start with, but he's saying, step forward and I'll, I'll lead you. An example in the Bible is Abraham. God said, I want you to move. But he didn't say where to. He just said, I want you to move. I want you to have faith. I want you to step forward and I will lead you to where 
you're going. Now, that's uncomfortable. If you're like me, I always like to know everything. I like to know how, where, what's it going to be like when I get there. But, you know, the journey of faith sometimes is we don't have that full picture. We just have to be obedient to what God is saying to us in that moment. Um, 24 years ago, um, we started an organization called Next Level International. And that was, that came out of a thought of why, should, why not help a few people in Eastern Europe? Now, at that point, communism had just fallen and um, Ian had gone for a trip into Eastern Europe and felt incredibly challenged um, by the need to develop leaders. There just were none. There was nothing for young people in the churches. And so he, he came home from that trip. We'd only been married about a year. And um, he said, um, I feel God has told me to do something in Eastern Europe. And I was like, oh, good. Um, and by the way, I'm quitting my job. Oh. Um, and so it took us on an amazing journey. I mean, it was scary because he gave up his salary. I was teaching, so that helped. But it was a walk of faith. It was obedience to what God was saying. To We didn't know what it would lead to we thought it might be just a couple of years of training a few people and then then Ian will get a proper job no we never did get a proper job <laughs> um but it was obedience to what God said and as we started walking in the obedience of that thought things developed another thought came more people came to help us, and it was a development of our thinking. So if you get a thought, don't dismiss it and go, oh, well, that doesn't sound very big, or, oh, I don't know if that's from God. Obedience is so important in our Christian lives. God's always wanting to develop us, develop our faith, and we need to step forward in obedience. You know, another way that I've noticed the process of bigger thinking is sometimes you actually get a very big picture of where God wants to take you. That's scary because we go, whoa, if I share that with somebody, they'll think I'm crazy. Or they'll think, oh, you're very arrogant that you think that you could get there. Um, and so we actually try and make our goals quite small because then we think, well, people will understand then. Um, but, you know, sometimes God wants us to be audacious with our thinking. He wants us to have big goals. So why not have a goal that this city of Hamilton can be a light in New Zealand? It can be the place people want to come to because the kingdom of God has come. Why not? Um, sometimes we just have to have that big vision and we have to start making steps towards it. A number of years ago, um, 
We felt that God wanted us to give a million pounds to missions in our lifetime. Wow, that's a lot of money. We're missionaries. We don't have that sort of money. So we could have either dismissed that and gone, ah, that's never going to happen, and just shelve it and forget about it. Or we say, okay, if that's going to happen, we're going to have to do something about that. We're going to have to make some changes in our lives. We're going to have to think differently. And, yeah, we haven't given a million yet, but we're not dead, so there's still time. But we've taken on different things. We've taken on some rental properties because we're, like, thinking all the time, how can we do that? You know, we're, we're trying to have bigger thinking. We're trying to stretch ourselves in order to reach that goal. You know, but so often we, we want to make that, oh, it wasn't a million, was it, God? I think it was a thousand. That seems a little bit more manageable. I think I could achieve that. But no, when we have a really big goal, we need a lot of faith. But we also need to work some strategy on how we're going to get there. And so, two ways. So, sometimes God will give us a small, will give us a thought and say, just want you to do that. And as you step, the steps get bigger. Or God might give you an amazing vision and you then start walking and the, and the strategy comes as you walk. And I just think that's amazing how God wants to grow us. You know, we, we see ourselves as small people, but God doesn't look at us like that. We're amazing people who have amazing potential. And I think so often we don't use our potential. You know, um, we sort of hold ourselves in, we keep ourselves small. But God says, wow, I live inside of you. There's nothing that you can't do. And so... I just wanted to encourage us today, as we're thinking about transforming our communities, it, it does start with us. So it needs to start with our thinking. And, you know, for some of us here, we're, we may be at that point where we're saying, yeah, I've actually, I've never taken control of my thinking. I've never really thought how important it is. I need to, I need to start processing and renewing my mind daily you know for others of you you may have had some thoughts in the past and dismissed them and thought oh no I couldn't possibly do that well it may be time for you to get resurrect that thought again and start stepping forward into what God wants you to do you know so I just encourage us this afternoon God has amazing thoughts about us and he also has amazing thoughts of what we can achieve when we've got God living inside of us. I just want to finish by reading. It's, it was part of Nelson Mandela's inaugural speech back in, let me have a look, put my glasses on, back in 1994. He's an amazing man. Um, and this was part of his speech, and I think it's incredible. It's called The Living Spirit. It says, Our deepest fear 
is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't save the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. As we let our light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Isn't that amazing? So when we step forward, it encourages other people to do the same. You know, we shouldn't shrink back. We need to be everything that God has called us to be. Let's all stand together, shall we? I believe, I believe as uh, Activate Church, former East Side, you've been on this journey for a good while. Maybe in the last year, things have begun to get birthed in lots of people's hearts, lots of people's hearts. And maybe the fear of not going forward has actually stopped you. Maybe you thought the thought was too crazy, too big, too wild, too outrageous, too out of the box. But somehow... The encouragement from Judah this afternoon says, no, no, I'm, I'm going to make this step forward. I chatted to one of the members yesterday, and she said, you know, when you came last year, you spoke about influence in our community, and I felt God put in my heart about uh, involved in, in training parents to be better parents and uh, to download the kingdom of God in that environment. She says, it's been a year, but on Monday, I start. So start. Start. Take the thought that you already have and start. Take the idea that you already have and start. Just begin. Just, just right now in this atmosphere, start. Take hold of that thought and say, Jesus, by your grace, by your goodness, by your mercy, I am going to start. I'm going to bake that cake and give it to the person next door. I'm going to invite my neighbors around um, for for tea or coffee or I'm just going to start. I'm going to do something. I'm not, I'm not going to tolerate not doing anything. I'm going to start however small it is. So just, just lift that thought up to Jesus right now. Don't let that stronghold of doubt and fear hold you back. Say, now, Father, I'm going to start. Put the stake in the ground. Say, today, Jesus, I am going to start. So, Father, we pray now for your kingdom to come. We pray for your will to be done. We pray, Lord, for faith, robust faith to rise up 
in every heart and every life. We pray, Lord, fresh confidence to go forward, boldness to make those simple steps of obedience, to go for them. For those who have the big picture, courage, Lord, to begin to strategize and to make plans to execute your will on the earth. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah. We're going to think good thoughts. We're going to think great thoughts. We're going to get hostage those thoughts that oppose the cause of Jesus in Hamilton and in our lives and in our family and in our community. Amen. Just be seated for a moment, would you? Just to say we've got resources. They are available for you. They could be of some help to you. Um, what we're talking about is transforming a city, um, transforming your world, transforming your school, college, workplace. There's a whole series here called The Power of Transformation, a systematic approach of how we get heaven down to earth in our environment. That could be a great blessing to you. There's another one here called um, The Spirit of Innovation. Some of us are way too boring to be helpful. <laughs> I'm on a mandate to destroy boring Christianity. 14 hours. 14 hours of teaching how to become a normal Christian. <laughs> the Bible says this. Those that are born of the Spirit, they are like the wind. You don't know where it's come from and you don't know where it's gone. You know that it's been. Are you a been person? When you brush into a person's life, do they know that you've arrived and do they know that you've gone? The spirit of innovation may well be a blessing and a help to you. And, and uh, so please have a look at that. For those of you that uh, don't like all that technology but you love CDs, we've got CDs available. How good is that? This is one called walking in favor. How do you get the favor of God in your life? It's not, let me tell you this, it's not by praying more. And it's not by fasting more. And it's not by reading the Bible more. So what have you got to do? Get the pack. <laughs> Manifesting good, the goodness of God. How do we get goodness out of our heart, out of our lives, into our community? How do we do that into our workplace, into our family? Beautiful. And then, if you don't want the full whack 14-hour gig, there's a three-hour gig on transformation. Simple steps of how you can transform your world, which will ultimately transform your family, which will ultimately transform your workplace, which will ultimately, if we all do this together, we're going to transform our city, and the devil is in a hell of a mess. Okay, you didn't like that? Well, God bless you. Um, check it out. Uh, I think we can take um, cash credit card, Rolex watches, children over 12 if they're healthy. Yeah, we can help you. God bless you. Thank you, Sheldon. Sheriff Sheridan. Great. Well, we're going to take another break. This time, just make it 10 minutes, please. And then Ian's going to run us through to the end after that. So make the most of... Now, at the, in the next session... We are going to receive an offering for the Greens. They live by faith. We want to bless them. We want to bless the work that they're doing and say thank you to them for being here. So if you wanted to, you could give it the FPOS, just write Greens gift or something like that on it. So it's obvious. 
and it will get to them. But um, So we'll do that the next time. You know the resources. Fantastic. 10 minutes is 20 past.
And then he add to that evangelism. Oh no, not evangelism. Not evan. Let me walk over broken glass. I'd rather do that than evangelism. And these two words oftentimes bring on a cocktail of fear, intrepidation, and great challenge. And this afternoon, I want us to understand the absolute joy, blessing, and privilege of applying these two principles into community transformation. When I say community, I mean the immediate community that's in our lives. We're all, we're all in a community. We may have a family. We may be in an office block. We may be in, in, uh, in a street. We may be wherever. There are people, on average, in any one month, we all interconnect with 32 people on an average basis. So if we, if we scanned our year, we would see there would be 32 connections that we're all actually connecting with almost on a monthly basis. That is our community. That's our community. So when I talk about community, that's the immediate community. There's the wider community. It could be of our social lives. It could be our work lives. You may belong to a bridge club. You may belong to whatever. And as a result, that's another community. So when we talk about community transformation, we're only responsible for the community that we're in. You're not responsible for my community, and I'm not responsible for your community. So if we all just pony up, do what we have to do, it all becomes great for everybody. Amen? So if you have a Bible, please, uh, please turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. In the opening verses of Luke chapter 10, uh, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, how do we get the kingdom out? How do we download the kingdom? And Jesus begins to expand how we can do that. He says, when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. Verse 5. If someone who promise, promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, they will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. And when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there. Sorry, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come to you. But when you enter a town and you are not welcome, go go into its streets and say, even the dust of this town we wipe from our feet as we warn you to. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near you. So Jesus in this passage is outlining to us how we get the kingdom of God into our world and into our community. And I have to say, it is absolutely opposite to how I have understood evangelism and kingdom download would operate, I would say I had thought quite opposite of this for 35 years. I would probably call myself as a confrontational evangelist. I get the word out, I speak the truth, take it or leave it. What I wasn't understanding 
most people were leaving it. But I felt good because I told them. And, we miss, and I missed the plot. In this passage, Jesus says there are four things that you can do that will get the kingdom into your, into your world, into your community. And the four things he says is this. He says, first of all, when you enter into an arena, speak blessing or speak peace. The second thing he says, become friends with the people that you've now met. Thirdly, he says, serve them and then take care of them. And then fourthly, share the good news with them. I want us to look at that for a moment. How do we get the kingdom of God? How do we get heaven into our current environment? How do we do that? Jesus says you start with speaking or bringing blessing. And blessing often starts through the mouth. We can bring atmospheric change through the mouth. We can come in an opposite spirit to what is already there. And as we begin to bring blessing, not cursing, not condemnation, not guilt, but blessing, blessing breaks open the opportunity for God to do something wonderful and significant. And so, because blessing comes out of the mouth, we, we often start by affirming somebody. We start by complimenting somebody. We start by looking for something good and highlighting it. When we, we sometimes have been used to thinking that we have to bring condemnation and guilt and pain and shame on people. No, no, that's not our work. Our work is to bring blessing. Our work is to bring life. Our, bless, our, our, our contribution is to bring hope. Our, our contribution is to give people a future. And we start with blessing. And so you may well be in an environment where it's a negative environment. We'll start to change that environment by blessing. It may be you may work in a very difficult um, job situation. We'll turn up a couple of mornings, 30 minutes before everybody gets into work and start declaring blessing and goodness and mercy and kindness long before anybody gets to the office or to the factory or wherever you work. Begin to speak out. Go around touching people's chairs. Say, Lord, I just pray today you'll bless Susie. She's got a heck of a big mouth. She's in an incredible gossip. But Jesus, just fill her with goodness and mercy and kindness. Fill her with good things today, Jesus. And you just start moving around the place and you start declaring the blessing and the goodness of God. When those negative conversations start taking place, ignore them and start highlighting something that is good. So sometimes, sometimes even in the family situation, sometimes it's easy to become confrontational. If you miss the confrontation and go beyond the confrontation, then speak something positive, it's amazing how all that anxiety, all that rub, all that angst disappears. We are blessing kind of people. We are designed to bring blessing. And blessing starts through the mouth. Now, there are sometimes there are practical things that you can do to be a blessing. You see a need, you can meet it. Fantastic. 
So Jesus says, when you enter into the house, when you enter into that city, when you enter into that community, wherever your community is, bring blessings. Speak peace and blessing. You see, what, what has tended to happen, we, we have tended to speak badly about people who do not follow our form of faith. That's not helpful. They've decided what they've decided. We've decided what we've decided. Feeling bad about them, speaking bad about them, that's not helping. <laughs> In fact, we sometimes are annoyed. We're annoyed with other people's values that don't have the kingdom values. We're annoyed with them. Sometimes we're angry with them. Am I speaking about myself or anybody else here? We're irritated by them. We have people in our community who, who don't think like we think. They use words that we'd forgotten and now they've made us remember them. And that's irritating. And it's really hard to love somebody and bless somebody who you are irritated by. Have you discovered? <laughs> Husband and wives, have you discovered? <laughs> it's quite difficult. It's quite difficult. And so we, we get disgusted with some of their values. We get disgusted by some of their politics. Look, they are believing what they believe in. But our job is to bring blessing. <laughs> our job is not to bring condemnation. Our job is to bring blessing. The Bible says this, Romans 2 and verse 4, the goodness of God leads people to repentance. It's the goodness of God, not the condemnation of God. It's not the guilt of God. It's the goodness of God. And in the work that we are often involved in in Eastern Europe, we're all the time strategizing. How do we get goodness into that kind of community? How do we do that? We're working in one community. It has 98% unemployment. 98% unemployment. It's so poor there, the mothers can't afford nappies for their children. So they send them to bed at night. Buck naked from the waist down, sleeping on a sheet of paper, a plastic sheet, and then mop up the mess in the morning. Well, it's very easy to be a blessing in that environment. Just provide a nappy. <laughs> like, you don't have to go to school, you don't have to get a PhD degree, you don't, you know, yeah, just a nappy will just be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah? yeah? So blessing is oftentimes simple. It's easy. It's just engaging the thought. But sometimes when we're irritated, annoyed, and angry, we actually are not blessing the people that need blessing. We're actually cursing them. I don't know if you've ever been involved in these kind of conversations where maybe someone's a little addicted to alcohol. And you start making a pronouncement over their lives. You start saying, 
Man, they're drinking that much. They're going, they're going to have psoriasis of the liver. That's what's going to happen. That doesn't sound like much of a blessing. You've actually declared a curse over them. That's not our job. Our job is not to sit in judgment. Our job is not to say we are right and you're wrong. Our job is to be conduits of blessing. And as we speak peace, we begin to neutralize demonic powers that are blind in the minds the people cannot see the goodness of God. See, that becomes a neutralizing effect. Because people find goodness, mercy, kindness, unconditional love very difficult to fight against. <laughs> An opinion they can fight against. A theological viewpoint they can fight against. But goodness, mercy, forgiveness, unconditional love, that's, that's pretty challenging. And so our job in community... The first thing that we do is that we bring blessing. We speak blessing. The Bible says this. The God of this world, that is the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelieving unbelievers that they might not see the light of the gospel. You see, the, 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 the enemy is blinding people's eyes. And the Bible talks about in the book of Acts... That is our job to unstop the blindness that people have. To unstop the blindness that people have. Because the devil is actively blinding people. But our job, the task of opening the eyes of the blind, is on the believer. And the part of the way how we do that is by bringing blessing and goodness and mercy and kindness and forgiveness into the world because they go, wow. What's that? What's that? What's that? And who can't do that? Who can't encourage somebody? Who can't affirm somebody? Who can't compliment somebody? Man, that's in our capacity. You don't even need, a, you don't even need to know a Bible verse to do any of that. You haven't had to go to Vision College to do that. We can do that. It's well within our grips, well within our capacity to do that. He says, after you have, have brought blessing, he says, just hang out, have a meal with them, become friends with them, become friends with not yet Christians. Become friends. That's difficult, that's difficult. I found that difficult. My lifestyle's, my lifestyle has made that quite difficult. It's not an excuse. And I have to get better at this. But, but we miss the plot when we're not having friends who are not yet Christians. I don't mean potential scalps. I don't mean potential converts. I mean friends. Say, so can I be a friend of someone who's not in the faith? Well, that was a criticism they put at Jesus, wasn't it? He's become friends of sinners. 
Would someone criticize you for that? Some religious people might. Jesus wouldn't, though. And somehow, to become a friend of a person who's not of it, that takes a little more effort. That takes a little more energy. That takes a little more negotiating. Because particularly if the friendship is going to have any, any hope of going anywhere, you know, we can all have this friendship. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. How's work? Good. How's work? Good. How's the family? Great. How's the family? Great. Like, we all know that level of relationship, okay? And we all know the only way that that level of relationship changes is when somebody becomes vulnerable. And that person is me. That person is you. Vulnerability takes the relationship to another level. When you basically start with your unsaved friend, you talk about a struggle, you talk about some level of brokenness, can you do that? I didn't think you could do that with unsaved people because they think I'm perfect. They think I'm the fourth member of the Trinity. <laughs> I'm a Christian. I've got all my ducks lined up. I know how everything works, and that's the problem. People don't realize we're all in the process of being fixed. We're not all fixed. Look in the mirror. You're not fixed. And plastic surgery won't do it. We're not, we're not all fixed. But what we are is quite a bit better than what we used to be. Like, if you think I'm bad now, oh, my gosh, you should have saw me when I first came to Jesus. Oh, my gosh. I could swear and speak in tongues. It was fantastic. <laughs> All in the same sentence. Manage to remove some of those words now, occasionally. You know... See, what happens is when we get a level of vulnerability, a level of openness, that gives the people that we're connecting with hope. Because most people in New Zealand think they're not worthy enough. They're not worthy enough to come to God. They've smoked too much stuff. They've done too many bad things. They don't like Australians. And so, when people hear some of our brokenness, they go, man, 
He's broke, she's broke. Maybe there's a bit of hope for me. Bit of hope for me. Because I thought these Christians were goody goody two shoes. I thought there was nothing they ever did wrong. And to become friends means we open up our hearts to someone and we become vulnerable. So Acts 26, 17 and 18 says this, And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. And yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open, to open the eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. And then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place amongst God's people who are set apart by faith in me. So we're downloading affirmation. We're downloading compliments. We're downloading goodness. We're speaking well of people. We're opening our hearts. We're opening our lives. And we become friends. Are you too busy? Are you too busy to have friends who are not yet Christians. It's a challenge, isn't it? I say quit coming Sunday nights. <laughs> What's it going to take it may be, maybe we have to join the bridge club. Maybe we have to join the cricket club. Maybe we have to take out a gym membership. Maybe we have to join the neighbor watch scheme. Maybe winter's come, invite a few people around for cheese and wine and watch the footy. I don't know. We can... We do have to think of how we are going to engage with people who are not yet Christians. And you know what? They absolutely deserve the love of Christ as much as we do and we have received. And if they never become a Christian, it's not been a waste of time. See, we have, we have notch mentality. I'm only going to spend time with those people that potentially are going to come to Jesus. Ah. How do you know that? How do you know that you are not the person in the line? How do you know that? The Bible says somebody plants a seed. Somebody waters the seed. It's God who gives the increase. Our job is to be planting and to be sowing.
I was on a, I was, I was on a plane flying from London to Chicago, and I've done that many times, and I sat down in the seat, and this woman sitting next to me, and I've kind of known best not to say too much until the plane's in that direction, so they can't get out. So we're having a bit of small, we're having a bit of small talk, and you know, of course, we always get to what kind of job do you do? And of course, I never tell them I'm a missionary. That's so unsexy, you know. So I've had to think of creative responses to that question over the years. And so I says, "Oh, I'm I'm in the process of bringing a social and spiritual revolution to Eastern Europe." <laughs> that somehow keeps the conversation going, you know. And I asked this lady what she does, and she's an eye surgeon. She's from Ohio, and, and her husband owned, and her husband's an eye surgeon. And I'm thinking, my gosh, what, are, what is she doing sitting in the cheap seats? I mean, she could, she could be, she probably is so flipping loaded, you could buy this airplane being an eye surgeon in America. Anyway, then, I, then the light goes, and I go, it's her lucky day. She's sitting next to me. <laughs> and so we, we start bantering back and forth and then, then get on to the kids, kids story, you know, kids, what are kids? And then she tells, starts telling me about her kids and she's got a lad 16 or 17. So, oh yeah, great, what's he doing? Yeah, he's at school, he's gonna graduate next year. And yeah, he's got his first date. Got his first date. Well, it's the first one that we know about anyway. And um, oh, so what's the girl like? Says, oh, she's 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 okay, but she's a bit of a fanatic. Says fanatic. What do you mean fanatic? She says, oh, she's one of these born again kids. <laughs> so I know a little bit about selling. And one of the things you learn about selling is you have to find out what they don't know about the product, okay? And then you highlight that. So they have all the good information they know, and then you find out what they don't know, and then you add that so, so the product looks fantastic. So I say to her, born again, what the heck is born again? And so she begins to articulate, repeating what this 14 or 15-year-old girl had said to her. This girl had done a flipping awesome job on this doctor. It was absolutely, as she's telling me, I'm wanting to get saved. It was fantastic. It was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. And so we kind of thing is going on and, you know, and of course, you kind of reach that point where, you're either going to spill the beans or go to the bathroom. <laughs> Don't ask what the difference is. And so I say to her, you know, I had a bit of a supernatural encounter when I was 14 myself. So I start giving her the story of God in my life. Of course, I'm not using any Bible verses because she's not religious. 
so I'm telling about the story of God in my life. And of course, we get into a point where I really let my evangelistic gift, I can make her get saved. I could say, what would happen if one of the wings fell off? <laughs> where would you go? Hmm. But because I know I'm a planter and a waterer, and I've already discovered that seed in a life, I'm just going to pour more water on. I'm just going to tell her more good things of what Jesus has done in my life, in our family. And I'm just going to leave it there. Because I'm not called to lead anybody to Jesus. I'm called to plant seed. I'm called to water seed. So I have lots of those kinds of experiences because of the job that I do, because I, I, I travel a lot, and they become my kind of moments of community. And I don't feel, I don't walk away feeling guilty. I don't walk away thinking, Oh, I should have pushed harder. I should have got them to cry. I should have got them to put their hands up. I could have got a, you know, I've probably got a few spare Billy Graham decision cards somewhere in my briefcase. I've got to get it to fill in one. That would have kind of nailed it. No, I don't feel any of that. I don't feel that at all. I mean, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome when you sense that maybe you are the last link in the chain. You know, the Dr. Billy Graham Association for numbers of years, okay, numbers of years have done extensive surveys on how people come to Jesus. And they say the average person in the Western world who comes to Jesus meets 13 different Christians and has 17 meaningful, experience, meaningful discussions about faith before they get saved. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know where I am in that chain. Maybe you do. I do. Oftentimes, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. But what I do know, if I find some seed, I'm going to water it. And if I find no seed, I'm going to plant some. Let God do, let God do His stuff. Because I reckon... I'm just a part of heaven's machinery drawing that person into a place of faith. What do you think? And so when we get friends into our lives, the goal is not to get them to be sitting on a pew on a Sunday morning. That may well happen. That's not the goal. The goal is for you to water and for you to plant. And should they come to faith, maybe to be a part of your small group would be much better than coming to a Sunday morning service. Maybe. We have to assess what is best for the person, not what is the expectation that we put upon them. And so Jesus says, Go and have a meal. Don't be fussy. Don't move around from house to house. But that's how a lot of evangelism used to be, moving from house to house. Let's do a street meeting. Yay! 
Repent, all you evil, wicked people in Hamilton. Hello? Let's go and talk to those people that we have no relationship with and ask them to make the biggest decision of their lives. Get a brain transplant. Look, for some of you to have signed up for a life insurance policy that's costing you 50 bucks a month, you had the blow come around 19 times before you signed on the bottom line. And you're only giving him 50 bucks a month. You want somebody to sign over their whole lives to this invisible person after three-minute declaration, not a dog's chance. So the authenticity of our friendship allows something else to transpire. It allows us into their world, and we find out what their felt needs are. Because in the passage, Jesus says, okay, you've ate with them. You've not mooched around. you kept consistently in their house. Good thing. Lots of conversation over food. You begin to understand what these people are like. Wow, you find out the sickness. Okay, pray for it. Gone in Jesus' name. There's a demon. Get rid of it. Gone. You find out what their felt needs are. And when you remove the felt need, they become aware of their real need. The problem with most evangelism is we're absolutely shouting down on people and they're not hearing a word that we're saying because the pain in their lives is like loud music in their ears and they can't hear a word that we're saying and we have to find a way to turn the volume down and we turn the volume down of the pain that they're feeling by meeting their felt need do you have that organization you're called Christians Against Poverty, CAP? Yeah. What an amazing ministry that is. You could be preaching to those people the moment they come, they're not going to be listening. They're just worried. How the f are they going to take our house? Are they going to take the furniture? Jesus loves you. He's got a great plan for your life. Get stuffed. They're going to take my house and they're going to take my furniture. No, he's got a wonderful plan for your life. Don't care. You don't understand how important this is. I don't. No, I want to hang on to my... See, so what happens with the ministry of CAP is they actually deal with the noise. They deal with the noise, the fear, the phobia, the real genuine concerns. Everything is going. Give them a plan how to get out of debt. Turning the volume down. And then they can speak about the good news. I spoke to the pastors yesterday about a, a church just outside of London some years ago. They, they, yeah, they, they created this idea about having missional communities, about if you were a part of that church, you had to be a part of a missional community. They really, they really... We're happy to see you on a Sunday, and you did need to turn up once a month, but really what was important to them is that you belong to a community where you serve that community on a 
weekly basis. And some of the older ladies in the church decided to set up a playgroup in a community about eight or nine kilometers from their town, community of about 20,000 people, didn't have, a, didn't have a mother and toddlers group, set up the mothers and toddlers group. As the mother and toddlers are, are coming, you know, no, no tracks on tables. No Billy Graham video preaching on the TV. <laughs> Just kindness, warmth, love, affirmation. As they're beginning to get to know some of these gals, quite a number of them are single parent mums. And they go in stir fry crazy because they, they got childcare 24-7. And the ladies come up with an idea, say, how can we serve them? How can we help them? And they come up with this idea, why don't we start a free babysitting service? Offer them free babysitting once every 14 days. So they're all excited. The news get back to the mother church. The mother church gets a bit nervous, says, Bring the women into the church office. Girls, what are you doing? What are you doing? He says, look, we're going to do these babysitting and look after these kids, give these girls a bit of a break. He says, man, if you do that, those girls, they're just going to go out and get drunk. They're going to get out and get stoned. No, no, no. I said, you don't understand. That's permanently on the menu. Like, they're either going to get drunk in front of their kids or they're going to get drunk down the bar. But getting drunk, that's, that's a given. But think of the upside. Once every 14 days, we have four or five hours with the kids. What an incredible brainwashing opportunity. <laughs> and not only that, when the girls come back stoned, we're probably going to have a time of talking. Because they're so lacking adult education, uh, sorry, adult conversation, They'll want to talk. And so sure enough, Susie comes back 12.30, stoned out of her brain. There's the proverbial mother sitting on the couch because her own mother has kind of punted her because she's embarrassed, she's whatever. And there's this young girl, 19 years of age, starts spilling her guts. All men are sex fiends. They're lust bags. The guy who got me pregnant, when he found out, he cleared off. A year later, I went with someone else. He got me pregnant. He cleared off. All men are evil sexual predators. Well, that's an interesting view of life. But she's angry. And the council. I got two kids here. I need, I need at least a two-bedroom apartment, and they stick me in this little one-bedroom masonette. She's angry with the council. She's angry with the mum and dad that don't help, not interested, don't even come and visit their grandkids. She's angry, angry, angry. Spoon out for two hours. And the wise older lady says, you know, Susie, I think you're tired and I'm tired. Why don't we finish this off on Tuesday? I'll come back on Tuesday. Sure. Back on Tuesday. 
booze has worn off. She can't remember all that she said. Goes back through it again. Get a very long story short. In six months, 31 of those girls came to faith. How awesome is that? See, we could have preached morality. Don't you know what the Bible says? Fornication is a sin. Fornicators, they go to not a nice place. How far would have that got us? The goodness of God. Older ladies opening something up in their area, finding out their felt need, met the felt need, turned the volume down, opened their heart to love, goodness, and mercy. He says, don't keep moving around. Don't keep changing your friendships. Hang on in there. Hang on in there. Hang on in there. Don't see them as potential scalps. See them as opportunities of people to show the relentless love of mercy, the relentless love of God to them, the unconditional kindness of the Father to them. Just see them. Your job is, is to bless them and to demonstrate the goodness and the mercy of God. And, and Jesus said, look, Meet them at their point. And sometimes it's practical. Sometimes it is practical. And sometimes it's supernatural. Maybe someone's unemployed. And as you get to know them, they're worried about that. They're anxious. You know, would you mind if I pray that you got a job? Like if, you're, if you don't want me to pray now, I'll pray when I go home. But I'd, oh, job, that would be awesome. Yeah, God's really interested in you getting a job. Now, you put a lot of pressure on Jesus. I can't feel no pressure. If he's interested in that person, job better turn up. Hello. Three weeks later, job turns up. You're having a coffee. says, did you really pray about that job? Yeah, I actually did just flap and act on a few swear words. Wow, that's amazing. No, that's only the beginning. So that's gone with dinner. They taste in. They taste in the goodness of God. They taste in the mercy of God. They taste in the kindness of God. It may be, as you start to share, as you start to talk, lovely, white, middle class, suburbia, Hamilton, two nice cars, go to the Sunshine Coast twice a year for a holiday. There's not a problem there, you think. You started to share brokenness. They feel in confidence to share brokenness. And Miriam, the wife, says, I'm going out of my head. Why? What's the problem? Jeanette, our eldest, 13, she's become anorexic. Anorexic, yeah, anorexic. And John, my husband, he's not dealing with it very well. In fact, he's probably down in a half a bottle of wine a night when he comes home because he doesn't know what to do. He's tried everything and nothing's, and now he's out of his head. I think he could have an alcohol problem, and that's not helping me to, to support Jeanette. And Jeanette, she's really not that communicative, and I really don't know what 
to do. You're never going to have that conversation unless you had shared brokenness. And then you go through your Rolodex and your head says, you know, do you think, do you think Jeanette would be open to some professional help? And you got, in your mind, you got some Christian counselors. I'll come with you. Maybe chat it over with her. She doesn't have to do the six-month gig. Just go, just find out, just find out. And you introduce her into a world that can give up practical sometimes. Maybe as you pray, you feel confident that some spirit has got a hold of her and you break the power of that spirit. And suddenly she starts coming to her senses and starts coming round. Bless. Just bless. Just befriend. Just get a bit vulnerable. Meet the point of need. And then Jesus says in this passage, <laughs> Jesus says in this passage, then tell them the kingdom of God has come. I have to tell you for 35 years, I did it the exact opposite. Shouted, screamed, confronted, take it or leave it, da 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 da. And most people were leaving it. Well, what we do when we take these principles, because the disciples said, how do we get the kingdom into our world? This is how you do it. You bless. You bless. You become a friend. You're at work. Someone's marginalized. Someone's always picked upon. You become their friend. That's what Jesus did. You become their friend. You become their friend. You build a friendship. You go for coffee. They come over. You watch a movie together. You find out what they like doing. You go with what they like doing. You find out their felt need. By the grace of God, something happens. Supernatural, natural, boom, something happens. How, how easy is that? Is this too complicated? This is overload for Sunday, Saturday afternoon, isn't it? No, I'm thinking. I'm thinking there's not a single person in the sound of my voice could not apply these principles. Bless, affirm, encourage, compliment, become a friend, be vulnerable, meet a felt need. Then say, this has happened because Jesus loves you. I want to show you a short video which will encapsulate that which I've just said and give you a picture form of what I'm talking about. Thank you. You are in for an incredible treat. This is about transformation, not just in a local church. That's where it began. But then we went to the marketplace and then to the city and the region and it's beginning to touch a nation, the nation of Thailand. So my friend, get ready to be blessed, to be inspired, to receive a divine download of transformational DNA as you watch transformation in Phuket, Thailand. In the early hours of the 26th of December, 2004, 
the earth heaved and shifted great tectonic plates. This movement released a surge of unbridled power that rushed towards the nation of Thailand with great force. Sometimes bad things happen that no one wants, no one's asked for. Such was the events that unfolded uh, the day that the tsunami hit Phuket. Despite an initial surge of support, international aid teams soon left. Yet through that disaster, incredible doors of opportunity were opened for the church to be a blessing to the people of Phuket. And as a result, I was able to take the church from being a church that ministered to just a few people to a church that now pastors the city. The good news is that God is raising up a small but powerful spiritual combat unit of pulpit and marketplace ministers who can actively engage in the extension of God's kingdom in every sector of society. Margaret and I started the church 20 years ago and for a long time we saw very slow growth. But since we introduced transformational teaching, we've seen incredible growth over uh, uh, 700 people come to know the Lord. And that's because I had a change in vision. This change of vision allowed Brian to see his church in a new way, and he boldly moved his congregation into a nightclub. The planet, once a landmark for nightclubbing and partying, has been transformed into a venue for marketplace ministers to be equipped with the principles of nation transformation. I am not just a pastor on Sunday, or in, on other day that people do come and see me in my office. But when I go shopping, when I go and walk in my street, I must realize that, yeah, I am the pastor of my city, I am the pastor of my street, I am the pastor of my village. I think that is the biggest change that I have to, to, um, to understand. For me, being part of a transformational church is absolutely essential. Um, without a transformational church, to live a transformational life, seems impossible. So for, I live in Bangkok Monday to Friday and coming down to Phuket um, to spend time with my church family here and being um, receiving the five paradigms and more teaching on it just makes it possible for me to go back to Bangkok on, Monday, on the Monday or on Sunday night to live a transformational life. From worship in God's house to worship in God's world, every believer in this community has a sense of the call of God on their life. One of the great blessings of being the pastor of a transformational church is seeing people like Wan Lapa start to come alive with the power of God. For 10 years, she had the testimony of being healed and yet saw no fruit. Yet since she's been applying uh, the Luke 10 transformation principles in her witnessing, she's led over 300 people to Jesus. I was a spirit medium for many years and then I got cancer. God healed me but I had no money and no job and could not survive. Then pastor started taking care of me and bought me an ice cream bike so I could sell ice creams. From here, I was able to speak to people about the love of God. Today, Wan Lapa not only ministers to the felt needs of the poor and needy in Orokrua, a sea gypsy village with her spiritual gifts, but she also reached out to the people of authority in her city. 
I had spoken about the love of God to so many people, but I had not shared with someone in authority. I wanted to see the mayor, but I was afraid, and I tried so many times. It was not easy to reach him, but I kept trying. I prayed and started inviting him to special events, and finally, God led him into the kingdom. When Lapa's faithfulness was rewarded, when she finally met the mayor of Phuket. Since becoming mayor, I have seen so many changes and miracles because of prayer. For example, the corruption that went on in the provincial hospital. Pastor Brian came to my office and we prayed together for this project to be completed, and it was. The mayor of Phuket recently appointed Pastor Brian Burton to be his personal advisor of righteousness. From the mayor's office to the Chamber of Commerce, the vision to be agents of change and transformation has begun to grow. I attended the seminar by Pastor Ed Silvozo and he taught me about nation transformation. It is a good teaching and I was able to pass this on to my community right away. Especially helpful was the teaching concerning corruption. If we can get our entire community to live a life with no corruption, surely this will change our community and our nation. As training manager of a hotel owned by Iam, Glenn Ferrer understands the significance of his position as a marketplace minister. Here in the marketplace where I, where I work, I have the opportunity to, to worship God uh, in the place of work, um, in, in, in the meeting rooms, in the training centers, uh, just out here with the staff. I'm actually doing my work in giving glory to God. So it's, it's a way for me to show my love for God in worshiping Him. As the city lights begin to illuminate the streets of Batong, there is much evidence of the lostness of both Thai and tourists. But yet God has put his children right into the heart of this community. Driving the streets and working as a vendor, Pastor Niran prays for the city and firmly believes that God wants him to pastor the city. I come here to work every night. This is my marketplace, right here where I work. This is my time to bless the people and to pray for them. As the nightlife continues into the early hours of the morning, the Burmese fishermen face another day of discrimination. With no identity in Thai culture, they are rejected and face a life dominated by crime, violence and drugs. But not all is lost because God has put his children right in the heart of this darkness. I'm just a fisherman who has become a Christian and my life has changed. The sailors have lots of problems with drugs and fighting and killing, but I believe when I pray for them, I bless them and bring the kingdom right here. I teach like, like transformation, uh, fight paralyzed, yeah? And then, so they are really doing like, uh, what we what we teach, you know, what what we done together, and so they're going back to really bless their in their work, their their community, their family. Most of this group have recently converted from Buddhism, but today boldly pray for a change in the spiritual climate in their community. Transformation pastors are always on the lookout for new and creative ways to infiltrate their communities using the principles of prayer evangelism. Eat with them. 
Before receiving this teaching, I always had a desire to see my city turn to God, but I had no idea how to do it. So I could only pray and hope and dream, but I did not know how to make it happen. But since receiving the teaching, I know it can be possible and a reality. Now it does not just have to be a dream. After we received the teaching, we started to apply Luke 10 teaching, blessing, fellowshipping, looking out for the felt needs of others, and then preaching the gospel. What a great principle. We can use it every day. One of the key indicators of nation transformation is the elimination of systemic poverty, and a transformational church is always intentional in their decisions to change the life and destiny of those less fortunate. PCC has recently invested in an active program to guarantee employment and an income for families left destitute by the tsunami. Ducks were bought and delivered to a local community with the intention to extend this program to a village where families have been neglected and forgotten. A regular cell group meets to disciple new converts. Here they pray to God, asking Him to hear their cries and together they trust that they will be relocated to new land within a year. God hears their prayers, and within two days, Brian signs a legal document on behalf of the mayor extending permission for the community to remain on the property for one more year. This is what being a transformational pastor is all about. Not working in the pulpit just on Sundays, but getting out amongst the people and seeing transformation become tangible in the lives of many people. Before this village was uh, uh, had an uncertain future. Many of these people face being uh, evicted uh, and now they have a, a secure future and a hope because of uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ in action in the community. City pastors are able to look at the needs of their community and not just the local church. As Pastor Brian prays over the city on a local FM radio station, he blesses the city with the love of Christ, and the station owner is inspired to serve God in his sphere of influence. What a God-given opportunity we had today to be able to pray for the people of Phuket on the radio. Now I have a new vision to help people to live their lives and to receive God's blessing. This is for both Thais and internationals. I've got a heart for the marketplace and I really want to want to work with uh, with people and you know in the economy and be part of that um, and I was wondering for a long time if I should step out of that and become a pulpit minister uh, in order to fulfill my calling um, and so the most liberating thing for me was to understand that I can be who I who God made me to be where I am right now. The transformational teaching has affected me very deeply um, working in the marketplace and it has enabled me to understand that I am really anointed for for business but also in what I'm actually gifted at um, and it's something that God has given me and that I can use for his kingdom. Government, business and education are the pillars in the transformation process. As a lecturer coming into my marketplace, this university complex, I believe that every morning that I come in, I'm bringing the presence of God to this place. So I pray for every single student, every lecturer and the dean himself, because I believe that God is going to establish his kingdom here. The great thing about being a transformational church is that you do tangible things to help the community. One of the things that we got involved in after the tsunami was the rebuilding of Kamala School. And for this project, Brian received the highest honor from the King of Thailand, making him the only Christian pastor to have ever received this prestigious award.
As transformation continues to take root in Phuket, the vision of God's people expands and day by day they are able to imagine a city and a nation totally dedicated to God. God's presence is being taken out of the four walls of the church and right into the heart of the marketplace. God's children are winning the highest awards of honor from worldly kings for acts of mercy and compassion. Despite the challenges of living in a Buddhist nation, believers in Phuket are truly living the principles of a transformational church, and daily God is adding to their numbers. This is the Great Commission in action, and nations are being transformed. Wow, wow, wow. If you are not shouting hallelujah, Hallelujah. Cool. Well, there's enough people in this room to start a revolution of transformation here. There is. It's a matter of owning it and starting to outwalk it. And it's not going to happen overnight, but as I can't remember if you or Judas said, one of you said, start now. Start now. We can do that in our own spheres of influence, can't we? So... Very good. Thank you so much for taking the afternoon with us today, guys. We really, really appreciate it. I pray you've been not only blessed, but really challenged as well. We are going to receive an offering as we finish. And um, can I really encourage you to give generously? I want to not only bless Ian and Judith when they finish the weekend here, but I also want to give or be in the position to give a significant gift to the Proton Foundation, which is an organisation they run. And... um, so we need to really bless in order for that to happen. So I'll give these bags around. But remember, you can do FPOS in the foyer and um, put a thing in. But just before you leave, how about taking, and I know we've gone over a little bit, but doing two things. Ian got us to do this yesterday. It was very, very helpful. Take out your pens and paper, and I want you to write two things on them. On, on your paper, probably not on your pen, with your pen, on your paper. The first thing I'd like you to write down today is what is one area that your thinking has started to change from today? One thing. One area where your thinking is starting to change from today. And the second thing you can write down, and take a couple of minutes as we finish if you need to, is what's one thing you're going to do because of today? So that's two things. One area that your thinking's been challenged and started to change from today, and one thing you're going to do because of today. Father, I thank you that you're speaking to us. I thank you that you're challenging us. I thank you that you see the future that we're yet to see. Father, I pray your blessing on every person, every family, every household, and the associated activities that are represented here today in Jesus' name. I pray that you give us a great sleep tonight, 
and that we would be well refreshed for tomorrow in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for coming out. Enjoy the rest of the day. Oh, services. Let me just say, we, we mucked up with our um, services. I think in the newsletter it says we've got one service tomorrow at 10 a.m. It's not. It's as normal. 9 and 10.30. So, and 6. We've got three as normal. 9, 10.30 and 6. So make sure if you're talking to people you get that message out. We sent stuff via email, but I know some of you don't read it. 9, 10.30, 6. See you then. <laughs>